Israel steps up its attacks on what it calls Hamas targets in Gaza, including a raid on one of the last functioning hospitals in the region. It's Tuesday, December 19th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, there's a new state law in Texas making it a crime to cross the border illegally that sets up a legal fight with the federal government and immigration advocates say innocent people could get hurt. We're talking about Texans that are United States citizens that will be in danger of being racially profiled, arrested, and even even deported. Plus how China's slowing economy is affecting the outlook for younger people there. And this hour? The canon for musical theater for Latinos is very small. And what I love about this show, it just kind of blows all of that wide open. A musical adaptation of Real Women Have Curves premieres in Cambridge. Partly sunny in the 40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The U.S. has helped launch a task force to protect shipping in the Red Sea. Houthi rebels in Yemen have fired on ships they claim are sailing to and from Israel, but they're really targeting any commercial shipping. Paul McCleary covers national security for Politico. He says the attacks have led major companies like BP to limit shipping in the Red Sea. The Norwegian Shipbuilders Union and uh, a German firm have also either said that they will try to go around the Red Sea or curtail shipping. So it's we haven't seen the effects yet, but it'll be pretty quickly, I think, that over the next week or two or, or several weeks that we'll really start seeing some, some disruptions in supply chains and things like that. He spoke to NPR's Morning Edition. The U.N. Security Council is supposed to take up a resolution today calling for a halt to hostilities in Gaza. The Arab-backed resolution was delayed yesterday in an effort to get the United States to either vote yes or to abstain. The U.S. vetoed an earlier Security Council resolution because it did not condemn Hamas. Since the beginning of the war in Gaza, the economy in the West Bank has plunged. NPR's Frank Langfitt reports from Ramallah that is raising concerns about more conflict in the Palestinian enclave. More than 100,000 workers are banned from going to their relatively lucrative jobs in Israel. Because of a dispute with Israel over tax revenue, the Palestinian Authority has slashed wages. Samir Abu Abaya sells Citroen vehicles. It's a lonely job these days. Am I the first person to walk in? Uh, some friends came here. But not shoppers? Not shoppers. So you haven't had a single shopper today? Today, no. Yesterday, no. He says he hasn't sold a vehicle all month. That's because people's incomes have fallen and consumers and companies are holding off purchases. Analysts here say the economic downturn adds to anxiety as attacks by settlers and Israeli military operations have risen. Frank Langford, NPR News, Ramallah. Google has agreed to pay $700 million to settle a lawsuit brought by dozens of states. It's over how the big tech company operates its app store. As NPR's Bobby Allen reports, the deal also requires Google to give consumers more ways to download apps on Android devices. Google says consumers will soon be able to buy apps directly from developers rather than go through Google's Play Store. The tech giant will also simplify the process of making apps available for download right from developers. Google is loosening up the tight terms of its app store in order to resolve a lawsuit from more than 30 states, which also includes a $700 million settlement. The company said $630 million will be set aside for consumers who were harmed through its app store practices, and the remaining money will be provided to the states that brought the litigation. It's the latest legal case to be resolved, alleging that Google became one of the most powerful companies in the world by breaking U.S. competition laws. Bobby Allen, NPR News. You're listening to NPR. 
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Nearly 134,000 power customers across the state are still without electricity this morning. That's the result of yesterday's storm. The biggest numbers of outages are on the South Shore. Those outages have led to school being closed today in several communities, including Duxbury, Marshfield, and Situate. At Logan Airport, things are getting back to normal. There were more than 200 delays and cancellations yesterday. This morning, FlightAware reports three dozen. Federal officials are seeking criminal charges against more than two dozen people accused of being customers of a brothel ring in Cambridge and Watertown. Federal investigators busted the brothel here and in Virginia last month. Authorities are not naming any of the 28 people until probable cause is found. Officials say more people could be charged as the investigation continues. Three people accused of running the ring are in custody. They pleaded not guilty. Starting this week, community responders can be dispatched on some 911 calls in Amherst. Alden Bourne explains why. The town's Community Responders for Equity, Safety and Service, or CRESS, are designed as an alternative to the police in situations that don't involve violence or serious crime. They will be handling calls mostly during business hours every day except Sunday. Amherst Fire Chief Tim Nelson is part of the leadership team for the new department. He says among the kinds of calls that town emergency dispatchers could send Crest to are mental health checks and well-being checks. Someone hasn't, hasn't heard from a friend for a while. Someone hasn't heard from a family, family member for a while or they've called and no, no, no one's pick, pick, picking, up or some, picking up the phone or something, something like that. There are now five community responders in Amherst. Nelson says he expects an additional three will be ready to join the team in February. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. South Coast commuters will soon be able to take a ferry into Providence. Rhode Island transportation officials say the ferry service will help drivers affected by the closure of one side of the Interstate 195 bridge. Beginning tomorrow, a ferry will run between the State Street dock in Bristol and downtown Providence. The free service will run through March. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash givemeals. The Celtics will be in the Bay Area tonight to play the Golden State Warriors. Meantime, the Bruins are at the Garden to skate with the Minnesota Wild. Dustin Pedroia, Jonathan Papelbon, and Trot Nixon will all be inducted into the Red Sox Hall of Fame next year. They'll be honored with longtime team executive Elaine Stewart. She was the first woman and the second African-American person named as assistant general manager for any team. Partly sunny today. We could see a shower this afternoon. It'll be in the mid-40s. Clouds give way to clear skies overnight with temperatures in the 20s. Sunny tomorrow and in the lower 40s. It's 42 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. 
And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. It's already a federal crime to enter the United States illegally from Mexico. Soon, it's going to be a state crime in Texas under legislation Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed yesterday. The measure means state and local police will be allowed to arrest people they believe are in the state illegally. Critics of the new law say it is unconstitutional and they worry it will encourage racial profiling. Julian Aguilar from the Texas Newsroom is here to tell us about what this all means. So, Julian, what penalties are baked into this legislation? So, Senate Bill 4 it makes it a Class B misdemeanor for people who cross the Rio Grande, um, and that's punishable up to six months in jail. Uh, that's a first offense. Any subsequent offense is a second-degree felony, and that jumps up to two to 20 years in prison. And this law is scheduled to take effect in early March. Okay, so what's the argument for also making illegal crossings a state crime? So the biggest takeaway is Governor Abbott and his supporters say that they Texas needs to do this because the federal government, the Biden administration, isn't enforcing the law on the books. Uh, you know, watching the governor's press conference when he did the bill signing, it's clear that the new law will empower state and local law enforcement near the border to crack down on unauthorized crossings, according to him. But the way it's written, it's a statewide bill. So this really applies across Texas and advocates worry this is going to erode people's civil rights and specifically target mixed status families. That's where at least one member is undocumented and the rest of the family are U.S. citizens. Now, the pushback that I keep hearing is that this law infringes on the federal government's power to regulate immigration. Is this designed to maybe trigger a, a lawsuit that would wind up in the Supreme Court? Right, correct. So uh, Governor Abbott says President Biden's administration isn't doing enough to enforce existing immigration laws and that Texas has the sovereign right to do this. Uh, but it gets to the heart of a 2012 Supreme Court ruling over an Arizona immigration law in which the court said local police didn't have the authority to arrest people solely based on their immigration status. Uh, you know, uh, legal experts I talk to, they say issues like abortion, gun control, these are domestic issues, but immigration is a federal issue because it involves cooperations with other countries. So how does all of this fit into Texas Republicans' other efforts to try and take control of immigration powers? Sure. It just adds to the list of what the state has done over the last few years, including Operation Lone Star, which is a state-based initiative that sent thousands of law enforcement to the border. Uh, you have the governor also ordering concertina wire to be strung up on the northern banks of the Rio Grande. He's deployed the National Guard down to the border. And, you know, he's also installed a floating barrier over a stretch of the Rio Grande. And that's tied up in, in the appellate court right now after um, he was sued to remove this barrier. He's also bused thousands of folks to a so-called sanctuary cities that are led by Democrats. Um, so this is just one more thing that the governor is doing to sort of uh, challenge the federal government's authority. So Julian, what happens then if federal officials and state officials both want to make an arrest or prosecute the same person? Who gets priority? Sure, that's one of the ambiguities about Senate Bill 4. The state and federal officials work together under Operation Lone Star already, but because this is a new bill, we're going to have to wait and see how it plays out. That's reporter Julian Aguilar from the Texas Newsroom. Uh, Julian, thanks a lot. Thank you for having me on. Many same-sex Catholic couples around the world are celebrating after the Vatican released a document that says clergy can now bless them. Authorized by Pope Francis, it marks a shift from the days when the church considered gay people to be, quote, intrinsically disordered, unquote. The document offers caveats. It reiterates that marriage is between one man and one woman and says the blessings should not be confused with marriage ceremonies. 
That's not stopping Samuel Smith and Micah Percy of Towson, Maryland, from planning to seek a blessing. The couple, who are Catholic, gay, transgender men, are hoping to get married in a couple of years. Hey, this is Samuel. So it's a big deal for us as a gay Catholic couple. We still can't get married within the Catholic Church, but we were planning on having a non-religious wedding ceremony. But now that we have the option of getting our relationship blessed, even outside of matrimony, um, which is the sacrament of marriage in the Catholic Church, it's still a big deal to be able to incorporate that Catholic tradition in our relationship. This is Micah. At first I misread it, and I thought that they had legalized same-sex marriage within the church. And then I read it again, I was like, that's still amazing. The fact that the church is putting out these statements of, no, the LGBTQ community has a place within our church, and that is an undeniable fact, is so much more progress than I could have ever hoped for. For Marianne Duddy-Burke and her wife Becky Duddy-Burke in Boston, it's a chance to bless their 25 years of marriage. This is Marianne. To me, I think it's incredibly significant that the leaders of our church are finally recognizing that the love and commitment between two women, two men, two people of the same gender can carry that same holiness and sacredness that any other relationship can have. This is Becky. I had, as many people uh, of faith, have experienced a lot of internal homophobia and a lot of guilt of being lesbian. So this brings me hope that people can be, you know, healed from internal homophobia. My disappointment is that the church didn't go far enough. And hopefully at some point, uh, same-sex couples can experience, you know, marriage in their parishes. I thought about it also as like another window in the church has been opened but the doors haven't been thrown open wide yet. So what are the chances that that will happen? Let's ask Father James Martin. He is a Jesuit priest. He's a best-selling author. He's the founder of an LGBTQ ministry and has met with Pope Francis several times to talk about these issues. Good morning, Father Martin. Good morning. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. So what was your reaction to this document being released? Did you expect it? Uh, I had heard that it was in the offing, uh, and there was some talk about it when I was uh, in Rome during the Synod in October, but uh, I didn't know when it was going to happen, so I woke up just as surprised as anyone yesterday. What do you make of the caveats in the document that are intended to avoid a blessing for a couple from seeming to be similar to a wedding ceremony? It makes it very clear that that is not to be the case. Right, and not surprising. Uh, you know, in the Catholic Church, uh, marriage is still between a man and a woman. Uh, so with those caveats, though, as someone said, uh, it's still pretty amazing, uh, because just two years ago, in response to this same question, the same Vatican office said, God does not and cannot bless sin. And now, you know, that's a dramatic turnaround from just two years ago. So it's, it's really a historic step forward for LGBTQ Catholics. Why, why do you think now? What, what do you make of the timing? Why do you think this came now? Well, there's some internal things going on in the Vatican. Uh, the head of this office, the theology office, called the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, uh, was replaced uh, by Pope Francis, and the fellow's name is Cardinal uh, Victor Fernandez. And he has signaled that, uh, you know, he wants a more open uh, approach to some of these questions. And in his letter... Uh, to Cardinal Fernandez when he took over, uh, Pope Francis said, you know, he is in favor of, I think what he said was harmonious growth uh, in theology and in practice. And so 
you know, it's uh, new people in a new office. That means new openness to different topics. You know, this is going to be controversial. We're hearing anger and dismay already from some conservative Catholic voices in the U.S. I'm sure we're going to hear those from voices elsewhere. Um, how do you think the Pope should handle that? Well, I think the way that he's handled it uh, in the past, uh, which, with his, which is with great patience and understanding, uh, he's trying not to move the church too fast. Uh, but he's also trying to listen to the voices of the people on the ground. Uh, you know, he has a great deal of experience with LGBTQ people. He knows them. He's met with them. He understands their, their problems and their situations. And so this is a response to uh, the needs of, of Catholics in the church and, and not just LGBTQ Catholics, which is a fairly small uh, segment of the church, but their friends and their families, which is a, a growing a growing number in our church. Do you think that this is a step on the road to same-sex couples being allowed to marry in the church? I don't think so. I think it's uh, it's an opening uh, to seeing that these relationships, uh, you know, are relationships of love and that they deserve uh, God's help just as much as anyone else does. And I think it's, uh, as I said, a huge turnaround from just two years ago. Do you, Have you had many requests for blessings yet? Uh, yes, I have, and I'm doing one today, actually. Today? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, and forgive me for, for being really sort of blunt about this, but it's been made clear that, that this is to be done in, informal, in an informal way. You're not supposed to wear certain vestments and stuff. Can I just ask, what, what arrangements are you making? Yeah, sure. So I'll probably wear my collar, which is fine. Uh, I won't do it uh, in a church. I won't be dressed in uh, liturgical vestments. We'll do it uh, probably in the living room of uh, my Jesuit community. So it's something very informal, just as the document uh, stipulates. And how do your how do the celebrants feel about that? I mean, I could argue on the one hand that this is it's a great step forward, but on the other hand, I could see where some might argue it's still second class citizenship. Well, I will say that most of the people, I think all of the people, all the LGBTQ Catholics that contacted me yesterday, and I know a lot, uh, were all delighted. Uh, So there was really no holding back. I saw a few people, you know, online who said, you know, I wish it would go farther. But, you know, there there are also people in, say, sub-Saharan Africa, Eastern Europe, Latin America, who think it went much too far. Uh, And so the Pope is really balancing this desire to move ahead and listen to people with the desire for unity in the church. It will be a great Christmas present for some. It already is. That is Father James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest. He's the founder of the LGBTQ Ministry Outreach. Father Martin, thank you so much for talking with us. Um, And uh, Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you, too. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the growing malaise among college graduates in China who don't believe their future will be as bright as that of their parents. It's 719. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. 
Have an artful holiday season with acclaimed exhibitions, a family film festival, art making, and more. Plan your visit at icaboston.org. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. I'm Deepa Fernandez. For decades, it has been legal for employers to pay people with disabilities less than minimum wage. While there used to be a floor that was set uh, for the lowest amount that someone can make, there's no longer any minimum. So basically, you could make pennies per hour. A movement for fair wages next time here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Tonight's the night for our annual reading of A Christmas Carol. Join us at WBUR City Space and enjoy Charles Dickens' Christmas classic. The event benefits Rosie's Place, a shelter for women. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Cloudy skies should slowly clear today. We'll have highs in the mid-40s. There's a slight chance of afternoon showers. Clouds move back in this evening, then out again overnight. Temperatures will be in the upper 20s. Sunny tomorrow with highs in the low 40s. It's 42 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Steven Spielberg's 1991 movie Hook, with Robin Williams' portrayal of a middle-aged Peter Pan who's forgotten his past, has won over generations of fans. And now here's a fun fact. It was nearly a musical. Tim Grieving has the backstory. Hook is a cherished childhood film for some of us, hilarious and heartwarming. You can fly, you can fight. Steven Spielberg, who was often likened to Peter Pan, saw Hook as a musical, but not a remake of any of the previous Pan musicals. He wanted something new, so he turned to his faithful composer. For two decades and 11 films, John Williams had already helped Spielberg make some of the most unforgettably musical movies in Hollywood, from Indiana Jones to E.T. Williams needed a lyricist for Hook, and who better than the guy who wrote the songs for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Leslie Brickus was a frequent collaborator with Williams over the years, including on two Christmas carols in Home Alone. Shortly before he died in 2021, Brickus told NPR he was thrilled about writing lyrics for a brand new Steven Spielberg Peter Pan musical. And we thought we'd got the Oscar with a song called Childhood. And I remember Stephen, when he heard it, saying, that's, that's a home run. Shadows, memories, lingering laughter. Reach out, touch me, half my life after. 
but it was a beautiful song, beautiful song, beautiful melody. Vintage Williams. Childhood was written for Granny Wendy. Williams and Brickus also wrote a seductive villain song for Captain Hook to sing. Looking at where we're at sensibly Boy, if you will spend a little time with me You can be, I guarantee Anything you want to be None of these made it into Hook the movie. The most lavish number was a big choreographed sequence when Peter first arrives in Neverland and the pirates burst into song. Down in the deep below, full 50 fathoms, dead men are sure to get to sleep tonight. Spielberg spent an entire week shooting an elaborate song and dance routine. But when he and John Williams reviewed the campy footage, they both realized their musical was a very bad idea. Yo ho ho! So Spielberg cut the scene and ditched the idea of Hook as a musical. Only a few remnants remained, including a lullaby which earned an Oscar nomination for Best Original Song. Here's a gift the angels send when you're alone. To most critics, it did not make any difference. The film was bad, period. But Hook has always enjoyed a legion of passionate fans. That's partly why Mike Mattesino, who resurrects and remasters John Williams' old scores, decided to revisit the soundtrack. Despite any perceived uh, shortcomings about the movie itself, the score has had a life of its own. He dug up the old demos, most of them recorded in 1991 for the actors to learn, including a song Williams and Brickus wrote for the Lost Boys. In Neverland, there's a song we never sing, the Never Song. At the start of Never Spring, we always never sing it, we never winter too. It's the nicest Never Song we never knew. And a song for Tinkerbell. Great things can happen if you believe. Greater than any make-believe. 32 years after the musical version of Hook died, Mattesina was finally able to convince all the parties at play to release a new three-CD album with all of the abandoned songs, as well as John Williams's complete instrumental score, which used the song melodies for most of its major character themes. The themes are all in the score, so even without the songs being sung, the score has a quote-unquote lyrical quality. You don't really get themes in a film score that have what we call bridges in a song, sort of a center section. And that's a clue right there that uh, a lot of these themes began life with the intention of having lyrics set to them. So even though most of the songs in Hook walked the plank, their tunes took flight as one of Williams's best and most song-like scores. And now the final collaboration between John Williams and the late Leslie Brickus can finally fly and crow. For NPR News, I'm Tim Grieving. Eight decades after they were eradicated, an ambitious plan to bring wolves back to Colorado has paws on the ground. To kick off an effort to restore biodiversity, a few gray wolves were released yesterday. Colorado Public Radio Sam Brash was there. About 45 invited guests pack into a small mountain clearing. A pair of metal crates sits on a patch of grass. Each one holds a wolf captured in eastern Oregon a day earlier. There's a moment of quiet as a drone films. And then, a wildlife officer springs each door open with a bungee cord. One wolf sprints into a stand of aspens and spruces. A second gray wolf pauses to look back at the crowd, then disappears. Everybody here is just in reverent awe. 
Colorado Governor Jared Polis stood by as the state released five wolves in total, watching them bound into their new habitat about two hours northwest of Denver. Wolves are an iconic and legendary animal, and to know that they're part of the Colorado landscape is really a new chapter. By releasing wolves, Colorado followed through on a ballot initiative narrowly approved by voters more than three years ago. Joanna Lambert is a biologist who fought for that initiative. By restoring an apex predator eradicated in the 1940s, she says the state can help the whole ecosystem. This is a moment of rewilding, right, of doing something to stave off the biodiversity extinction crisis that we're living in. Local ranchers have filed lawsuits to stop further releases. Colorado has fought off those challenges, but it's still listening to their concerns, says Dan Gibbs, who leads the Colorado Department of Natural Resources. That's why the state will compensate ranchers who lose livestock to wolves more than other states. Will that take away and alleviate the concerns that they have? No. But my my hope and my philosophy is really that we can learn to live with wolves and not against wolves. And with plans to release up to 50 wolves in the next five years, Colorado isn't waiting to prove it can succeed. For NPR News, I'm Sam Brash in Grand County, Colorado. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, we preview the world premiere of the musical adaptation of the movie Real Women Have Curves. It's happening at the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge. It's 7.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Canyon Ranch Lennox, the all-inclusive wellness resort in the Berkshires. Spa, fitness, gourmet cuisine, and restoration for the holidays and the new year. Wellness and relaxation, a three-hour drive from Boston. Learn more at CanyonRanch.com. That's CanyonRanch.com. And we need a vacation. With over 4,000 vacation rentals on the Cape and Islands, from large to small, luxurious to modest, for over 25 years. More at WeNeedAVacation.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden and Chief Justice John Roberts are expected to speak today at the funeral for retired U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. She died earlier this month in Phoenix at the age of 93. O'Connor was the first woman to serve on the nation's high court. She retired in 2006 after more than 20 years on the bench. O'Connor's son, Jay O'Connor, spoke to NPR's Morning Edition about his mother's life and legacy. She lived and breathed the notion that every citizen has a duty to understand how our democracy and how our government works and has to be part of the process, has to contribute to it. She believed that, you know, from the earliest part of her career, and she lived that principle throughout her life. O'Connor's funeral will be held at Washington National Cathedral. Senate negotiators say they have a long way to go to get an agreement on border security and immigration policy. Here's Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. This set of law is so important and so complicated that you can't, um, you got to get it right, not get it fast. Republicans in Congress won a border agreement before approving the president's request for additional USA to Ukraine and Israel. 
This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. It could take a while before everyone who lost power in yesterday's storm gets the lights back on. The state reports more than 131,000 outages right now. That includes thousands of customers in Situate, Easton, and Duxbury. The Plymouth District Attorney says an 89-year-old man died in Hanover yesterday when the wind blew over a tree onto his trailer. The airlines are trying to get back to normal today, but the website FlightAware reports more than 35 flight delays so far at Logan Airport. Governor Healy says the state needs an additional $224 million to keep its emergency shelter system running through June. To cover the deficit, she plans to dip into the state's surplus account. The administration says that money will also be needed to help cover the estimated $915 million in shelter operating costs for the next fiscal year. Healy says the money would also cover costs of building more affordable housing and helping families navigate the immigration system. Massachusetts has a new leader heading its probation system. Pamerson Eiffel is the first black person to lead the Massachusetts Probation Service. Eiffel is known for addressing racism and disparities in the agency. He says his experience growing up in poverty in Barbados shapes how he wants to lead the agency. It's a reminder that if we give people the right kinds of tools, resources, and opportunities, the lot of the folks that we're working with can be successful. Some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life were sitting across from a probation counter and talking to me just because they didn't have access opportunities or make the right decisions. Eiffel says he wants to continue focusing on solutions and equity as he gets started in the role. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lake Champlain Chocolates, celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com. The Bruins will be at home tonight to host the Minnesota Wild. The Celtics begin a West Coast road trip tonight against the Golden State Warriors. There's a slight chance of afternoon showers today. Otherwise, skies gradually clear for a partly sunny day with highs in the mid-40s. Some clouds move back in this evening, then skies clear again overnight. It'll be in the upper 20s. Sunny tomorrow will have highs in the low 40s. It's 42 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. China's economy is slowing, and that's put pressure on its younger citizens. After a generation of explosive growth, they're now facing what looks like stagnation going forward. So how does that feel? For our series on China this week, NPR's Emily Fang asked that question. China's youth came of age during a time of huge growth, but now a sense of gloom is hanging about them. They include 20-year-old Jeffrey Ahn, who saw his parents rise from rural poverty to urban wealth, in part by investing in an exploding property market, one of the reasons why China grew so fast in the last four decades. But for himself, he sees no similar opportunities today. 
I probably won't buy any property for now because I feel the property market will collapse and that collapse will spread to other cities in the future. Instead, he feels China's best years are behind him. China's golden years, the two decades or so after our country's reform and opening up policies, are over. There's nothing I can do about this. I can only accept it. His disillusionment is in stark contrast to the Chinese of the last generation. Li Ren, a research director at Global Asset Manager Wisdom Tree, explains. The people who were born in the 70s, 80s, they feel the future is so bright. Uh, you know, all you need is just, you know, work hard and, you know, get to the next level. She would know because she was part of that optimistic generation. She got to attend university and move into a big city and later study and live abroad. Whereas those entering the job market now face much dimmer prospects. I think for the younger generation, the wage growth has really significantly slowed down. The expectation definitely has changed for the next generation. Hou Zesong, a fellow at the Chicago-based think tank the Paulson Institute, says youth unemployment has been building for years. This year, more than 11.5 million university graduates joined the job market, and many are still looking for a job. I don't think the Chinese economy will be managed to absorb the new graduate this year. And because of ongoing property and local government debt drag to growth, I believe that Chinese growth rate next year is more likely to be lower, even lower than this year. So which means that the youth unemployment rate is more likely to continue to accumulate. On top of all these pressures, a regulatory blitz last year targeted China's consumer tech companies and education firms, which predominantly hired millennial and Gen Z workers. The layoffs disproportionately hit younger Chinese. 34-year-old Zhao Wei was laid off in Beijing by one of these tech companies this year. Until recent weeks to avoid the embarrassment of telling her live-in mother-in-law she's unemployed, she went to cafes and libraries, pretending she has a job while trying not to spend too much money. I would get up and leave the house at 10 a.m. each day and don't come back until 8 or 9 in the evening. But Joel says the charade of pretending to have a job is wearing thin. So she's now decided to take this opportunity to slow down and take a break, like many people in her age bracket. Dropping out of the formal economy is now common enough that there is a popular term for it lying flat or tangping in Chinese. Our two generations have completely different attitudes towards work. Work should not define a person's value. Faced with the country's dimming economic prospects, she's not in a rush to find another job. After all, why work so hard when the heady days of double-digit economic growth are a thing of the past? Emily Fang, NPR News. We'd like to let you know we're also watching reports this morning from northwest China where a 5.9 magnitude earthquake has killed more than 100 people. It happened just before midnight local time, and thousands of rescue workers have been searching for survivors in sub-zero temperatures. You'll find more details throughout the day on NPR.org.
Since the war between Israel and Hamas began, people have shown support for Palestinians with images or emojis of watermelons. Watermelons are grown in Gaza and the West Bank, and like the Palestinian flag, they are red, white, black, and green. The watermelon has long been an emblem of Palestinian solidarity and resistance in the occupied territories, where displays of the Palestinian flag are often restricted or banned by Israel. Art researcher Leila Jadullah says it's also symbolizing life under occupation. When the colors of the Palestinian flag were banned, not only as a physical representation of Palestinian nationalism, but also in art, we see the watermelon keep appearing in Palestinian art and more broadly because the same issues of censorship have continued through this day. Palestinian artist Suleiman Mansour recalls facing censorship when he and other artists tried to exhibit their work in the 1980s. He says the inspiration for using the watermelon symbol came from an Israeli official who gave them two orders. We are not allowed to make any exhibition unless we get a permission from them to exhibit the works. And we are not allowed to paint in red, green, black and white. Mansour says a fellow artist asked what would happen if he painted a flower in those colors. Then the interrogator said, then we will confiscate it. Even if you paint a watermelon, we will confiscate it. To test the limits of that edict, the watermelon became a protest against occupation. This created the kind of uh, sensation among artists, you know, like uh, forbidding artists to paint in certain colors. So we had a lot of uh, support from many artists from the world and also from Israeli artists. Mansour says his work focused on Palestinian culture, not politics, until he was detained by Israeli officials. The idea was to intimidate me and to tell me that they have their eye on me. I learned a lot, you know, from going through the interrogation and having a bag on my head and my hands are handcuffed behind me and and standing like 24 hours without food, without drink, without anything. After that, Mansour says, he started painting watermelons. It broadens your mind as somebody living under occupation. And maybe it drives you to do things that otherwise, if you live in very nicely under occupation, then as an artist, you wouldn't do it. Despite efforts to crack down on displays of the Palestinian flag and its colors, Mansour says the watermelon symbol will endure. As long as the occupation goes on, it, it will stay on. For more stories and perspectives on the conflict, visit npr.org slash Middle East. Later today on All Things Considered, the Census Bureau wants to revise the way it counts the number of people in America who have disabilities. Some advocates say the change would artificially reduce the numbers and lead to a dramatic undercount. Listen wherever you are, on your phone, your computer, your smart speaker, or on your reliable radio. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBMR's Morning Edition, 122-year-old U.S. steel has been bought by Japan's Nippon Steel. We'll look at what that might mean for American jobs. 
Cloudy skies gradually cleared today for a partly sunny afternoon, although there is a slight chance of showers. It'll be in the mid-40s. It grows overcast this evening and falls to the upper 20s. Clearing skies overnight make way for a sunny day tomorrow in the low 40s. It's 42 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Bedford-based solar company Cubic PV says it is one step closer to building the largest solar wafer company outside of China. Solar wafers are thin silicon conductors used in solar cells. The company says it finalized a $1 billion deal with a South Korean company that'll deliver silicon to build the wafers. Cubic PV has not announced where it plans to build the factory, but says it hopes to open it in 2025. Around 1,600 workers at Boston Medical Center are celebrating the ratification of a new contract. The four-year deal includes pay increases ranging from 15 to 39 percent. The contract also gives workers a pathway to paid mentorship and training programs and creates a public health emergency committee. The state's first THC drink dispensary plans to open in Medford in a few weeks. High Five Beverage Dispensary will be located in the same building as Theory Wellness, which is a more traditional cannabis dispensary. Leaders behind High Five say they'll exclusively sell THC drinks. Those include seltzers, sodas, and energy drinks infused with the psychoactive component of cannabis. It's 744. I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news, the news you trust. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Two decades ago, the film Real Women Have Curves became a critically acclaimed sensation. It was applauded for its portrayal of Latino families. Now Real Women Have Curves, the musical, is getting its world premiere at the American Repertory Theater. As WBUR's Ariel Gray reports, it tells the story of a Mexican-American teenager as she juggles her dreams with her family's expectations. Teenagers don't always see eye-to-eye with their parents. Mexican-American high school senior Ana wants to leave her Los Angeles neighborhood to go across the country to attend Columbia University. Six more weeks is all I've got If I want to leave this town And I don't care if I am sleep-deprived Got no time to mess around Her mother, Carmen, doesn't understand Anna's desire to leave her family. It's one of the main conflicts in American Repertory Theater's musical production of Real Women Have Curves. 
It's directed and choreographed by Sergio Trujillo, with music and lyrics by Joy Huerta and Benjamin Velez. We put our dreams aside for what the family needs. Each of us hustle every day without complaining. It's time you learn to make a dress. You have big dreams. Try sleeping less. Playwright Josefina Lopez, who wrote the play that the film and musical are adapted from, used her own life as inspiration for Anna. Well, you know, Anna is me, right? At that age when I was working in the sewing factory, trying to keep a journal, trying to keep from giving up because I was very depressed and sad that I couldn't go to college. Anna ends up working at a garment factory run by her sister for the summer. But what she really wants is to be a reporter. Anna is so much more capable than she may have been given credit for. And that by her leaving doesn't mean that she is abandoning their family. That's Lucy Godinez, who plays Anna in the musical. At the garment factory, she becomes close with a group of vivacious women. They have their own stories filled with joy and grief. I came alone from El Salvador, hoped to one day travel back before my mother sold and bent. But first I need to pay my rent. I got three the musical takes place in 1987 and touches on enduring topics like body diversity. All of the women in the musical have different body shapes. Gondina says it's an important representation in contemporary musical theater. And we talk about racial and ethnic and gender diversity in theater, but we don't talk about body diversity in theater in the same way. And so getting to see people, again, of all body types, it's so unique, and it's not something that I've ever gotten to experience as an actor. The women at the factory live in constant fear of being deported by La Miga, or Immigration Customs Enforcement. It's a reality of being undocumented that Josefina Lopez wrote into the original play. It's the diary of Ana Garcia, you know, and, and how they hid out from the Migra and the fear they had of being deported and separated from their families. There are hardships in Real Women Have Curves, but it's also a celebration of personal freedom. Seeing such varied stories of empowerment in a musical hits home for Godinez. But the canon for musical theater for Latinos is very small. And what I love about this show, it just kind of blows all of that wide open and leaves so much room for multidimensional representation of Latinas. Godinez hopes that the musical provides Latinas of all body types a way to envision themselves and their stories on stage. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Ariel Gray. No matter what curveballs they throw. ART's Real Women Have Curves, the musical, plays through January 21st. To see photos of the production, visit WBUR.org. It's a Tuesday morning on WBUR, coming up at 8.20 on Morning Edition. NPR helps a patient who got a $600 bill for what was supposed to be a quick and inexpensive telehealth appointment. WBUR supporters include Summer Orchestra Institute at New England Conservatory for students 13 through 18. Priority registration ends February 4th. Apply at necmusic.edu. 
and the Harvard Art Museums with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. The U.S. and its allies are sending a naval task force to the Red Sea to stop an Iran-backed militia from attacking ships. The U.N. Security Council is set to vote on a new Israel ceasefire motion today following an earlier attempt that was blocked by U.S. officials. And on the South Shore, widespread power outages caused by yesterday's storm have led to school closures in several communities, including Duxbury, Marshfield, and Situate. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Booksmith in Coolidge Corner, an independent bookstore offering books, gifts, events, and more, just in time for the holidays. More at brooklinebooksmith.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. A baker in Pittsburgh is turning her talent in the kitchen to celebrating hidden figures in history. She makes cookies into portraits of unsung Asian American heroes. Here's NPR's Lakshmi Singh. Jasmine Cho is about to try something she has never dared try before. She's going to take a bite of her own cookie. Wait, no pressure. (laughs) Ah, this is pressure, you're right. I've never bitten into a face cookie before. Cho's reservations are understandable given the hours, sometimes days, she spends on her custom-made creations. Underneath every layer of icing is a remarkable story of a warrior who's confronted discrimination and injustice at great personal cost. Each inspiration is plucked from the pages of history books or present day postings on social media. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't want to bite any further. (laughs) On this day, the founder of the online bakery Yummy Holic is struggling to show me the ropes around this commercial kitchen in Pittsburgh. This place is filled with the intoxicating aroma of vanilla, sugar, and butter. Lots and lots of butter. Cho remains fixed, though, on a photo of a young woman with a bashful smile and gets to work. So I'm mixing a little bit of color right now, a little bit of green. She presses the tip of a slender brush into a palette of food coloring and icing then applies the sweet ingredients and gentle strokes across a four-inch canvas of baked dough. All right, I'm just gonna go for it and just start maybe with her eyebrows here. Within minutes, the familiar contours of eyes, a dimple, and a smile emerge and bear an uncanny resemblance to her subject's photo. She's taken a cookie and finally turned it into a work of art. And then she starts the process all over again, dozens of times over. To think these delectable delights started out as birthday party favors, but became an online sensation. It just went completely viral. There was so much attention being funneled toward it. And so that was really my aha moment of, wow, everyone's paying attention to something I've created. What do I want them to pay attention to? In 2019, Cho made it to the stage of a TEDx talk in Pittsburgh, where she shared her idea. She wanted to shine a light on Asians and Asian Americans who, she says, have been left out of school curriculums. Privilege is when your history is taught as core curriculum while mine is taught as an elective. 
Growing up as an Asian American, I felt like I had to accept being invisible in the only country I knew to call home. The joyful baker says she leaned into her mission for social justice. She baked batches of tributes to figures who embody resilience and are widely celebrated as protectors of revered traditions, each cookie portrait capturing every minute detail, like her striking portrayal of the iconic Filipina indigenous tattoo artist, Apo Wang Od. She's 106 years old and I am piping on every single you know, fold in her skin, every wrinkle. And I think those are physical traits that each tell a story. In 2020, Jasmine Cho scored major commissions to showcase cookie portraits of unsung Asian American heroes, including work for the Comedy Central sitcom Aquafina is Nora from Queens. There were workshops, a docu-series, a census project for Pittsburgh, and of course, a lot more orders. Then 2021 arrived. That was actually a far more difficult year for me. Uh, That to me was at the height of anti-Asian violence. Reported crimes targeting Asian American communities soared in the United States since the coronavirus was first reported in China more than a year earlier. Headlines of horrific attacks kept coming. Police arresting this man after surveillance video caught him repeatedly kicking a 65-year-old woman who was on her way to church. She ran over, grabbed me by the hair, threw me on the ground, and started punching me several times. This surveillance footage shows a 71-year-old Asian grandmother violently shoved to the ground, her purse stolen. Cho says she remembers feeling rage, fear for her own family, and painfully disconnected during the pandemic especially when a beloved aunt suddenly passed away after surgery. The only way Cho could grieve at her aunt's funeral was from the other side of a Zoom camera. Depression took hold, and Cho pulled back from virtually everything she held dear, including baking. The social justice activist who'd made it her life's mission to bring joy and understanding to the world was now struggling to understand the world she lived in. But over time, Cho seemed to discover something profound about herself. She realized that the vulnerability she had been feeling had actually been her strength all along. I really do hold to the importance of remaining tender. Um, You know, you talk about how a good baked good has a tender crumb. You know, to me, tenderness, that softness is about making sure that you don't numb yourselves to the experience of life, and life includes pain, but also joy. (laughs) Jasmine Cho says she found her joy again for personal connection, for baking, and for indulging a rookie who thinks her misshapen cookie's ready for prime time. I nailed it. (laughs) No, yeah, you did. (laughs) I was looking at mine. Like that show, nailed it. I'm Lakshmi Singh, NPR News in Washington. How fun. This was fun for me. (laughs) That story is part of Lakshmi's new series called The Sunshine Project. It's available now on the NPR app.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science. Experience The Heart of New England, a giant screen film showcasing this iconic region. See it only on IMAX, MOS.org. And the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash givemeals. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. and several allies are sending a naval task force to the Red Sea to thwart attacks on ships by Houthi rebels. It's Tuesday, December 19th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, at least 64 journalists have been killed in Gaza since the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israel. It's being called an unprecedented loss. Also this hour. It is a giant step forward. It's very disturbing, it's very appalling. We hope and trust that the Holy Spirit will eventually correct this. Massachusetts Catholics react to the Vatican's new rule allowing priests to bless same-sex couples. Plus, we talked to Massachusetts's new probation commissioner who experienced discrimination within the system firsthand. Going to courthouses and being mistaken as a defendant. I think the most recent one was in 2019, despite being a deputy commissioner. Clearing skies today in the 40s. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The U.S. is joining nine other nations in a task force to protect commercial shipping in the Red Sea against Houthi attacks from Yemen. The Houthis claim they're attacking ships doing business with Israel, but the attacks are indiscriminate. The U.S. says Houthis have launched more than 100 drone and missile attacks against 10 merchant vessels. They've also kidnapped an international crew. North Korea says it test-launched its biggest and newest intercontinental ballistic missile to deter U.S. military aggression. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Seoul it's the North's fifth ICBM test of 2023, the most the country has launched in a year. State media released pictures showing leader Kim Jong-un and his daughter watching a Hwasong-18 ICBM take off from a mobile launcher on a snow-covered field near Pyongyang. The missile is theoretically capable of reaching any target in the U.S. Kim was quoted as saying that the missile launch is a signal to hostile forces seeking military confrontation, and it shows what Pyongyang can do if Washington makes a wrong decision. On Tuesday, South Korea's defense ministry said the U.S., South Korea, and Japan have activated a system to share real-time data on North Korean missile launches and set a plan for trilateral military drills to counter the North's threat. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has signed measures into law that make it a state crime for undocumented people to enter Texas. It's already a federal crime. Now, Texas state and local police will be able to arrest people they think are in the state illegally. 
The Texas newsroom's Julian Aguilar says advocates fear it will encourage racial profiling of people of color. Watching the governor's press conference when he did the bill signing, it's clear that the new law will empower state and local law enforcement near the border to crack down on unauthorized crossings, according to him. But the way it's written, it's a statewide bill. So this really applies across Texas. And advocates worry this is going to erode people's civil rights and specifically target mixed status families. That's where at least one member is undocumented and the rest of the family are U.S. citizens. Julian Aguilar reporting. The White House says Vice President Harris plans to discuss reproductive rights at stops across the United States in 2024. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports it's part of President Biden's re-election campaign strategy. The vice president's tour around the country will start in Wisconsin on January 22nd, the day Roe versus Wade was first decided. The White House says that during Harris's tour, she will discuss the harms caused by abortion bans and go after politicians who support limiting reproductive rights. This is a continuation of the work the vice president has already been doing on abortion. Since Roe was overturned by the Supreme Court, she's traveled to 16 states to hold events on the issue with stakeholders like doctors, state legislators and students. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. On Wall Street, in pre-market trading, stock futures are higher. This is NPR. Relief organizations say more people in Sudan are fleeing warfare. The Sudanese army and a powerful paramilitary group have been battling for much of this year, displacing more than 6 million people. Now the paramilitary group is surrounding a Sudanese city where many civilians had taken refuge. Relief organizations say the Sudanese civilians are fleeing with nothing. A new law in Pennsylvania makes changes to how probation is administered in the state. From member station WHYY, Eric Nixon reports it's part of Pennsylvania's so-called clean slate legislation. Senate Bill 838 requires probation review conferences after two years, or half of someone's probation sentence, whichever comes first, and after four years for felonies. It also aims to keep people from being sent back to prison for minor probation violations. Philadelphia rapper Meek Mill, who served a prison sentence for a minor offense while on probation in 2017, spoke at a ceremonial bill signing. I had to fight against that the whole time to gain my respect and be who I am today, and I'm proud of that. Senate Bill 838 is the latest in Pennsylvania's clean slate legislation plan, which seeks to reduce recidivism and ease re-entry into the workforce. Critics say it fails to address structural issues in the probation system. For NPR News, I'm Eric Nixon in Philadelphia. The National Weather Service says a powerful storm that battered the East Coast has pulled away into the Atlantic Ocean. The storm killed five people from South Carolina to Maine. It poured more than a foot of water in some places. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chinoy. We're still feeling the impact of yesterday's storms here in Massachusetts. The state reports more than 129,000 outages. That includes nearly everyone in Millis, Situate, and Rochester. The National Weather Service says wind gusts yesterday hit more than 60 miles an hour. That caused a lot of delays and cancellations at Logan Airport. This morning, the website FlightAware says there are more than 40 delays. Senator Elizabeth Warren is supporting a plan from Governor Healy to address the state's housing crisis. The plan would kickstart housing production and allow communities to tax high-priced real estate purchases. Warren is in favor of the plan, but she says the federal government needs to help. She's suggesting a tax on corporations that make over a billion dollars in profits. That money would be used for housing grants.
A Massachusetts airman who died last month off the coast of Japan will be buried tomorrow. More now from Alden Bourne. Air Force Staff Sergeant Jake Gallagher was killed when the Osprey aircraft he was flying in crashed. He was 24 and grew up in Pittsfield. His body arrived at Westover Air Reserve Base in Chicopee last Friday. Governor Mara Healy was there. She said it was important to remember the sacrifices members of the military and their families make, especially during the holidays. It's a time of year of a lot of reflection, a lot of celebration. It's a time of year where families typically will gather together. And to me, it just drives home the fact that there are families here in Massachusetts, including the Gallagher family, who will have an empty seat around the table. Gallagher had a wife and two young children. His burial will be preceded by a funeral in Dalton. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. Independent primary care doctors in Massachusetts will soon be reimbursed more for the mass health patients they see. Certain practices with a high number of Medicaid patients will get reimbursed up to 35 percent more to see them. The increase comes as doctors struggle to cover rising expenses. Mass health officials tell the Boston Globe this is the first time these practices are getting a rate increase in recent years. It's 8:07. WBUR supporters include the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new Martin acoustic guitars, because every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. And Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. Oceanstatejoblot.com. The Bruins are back at home tonight to take on the Minnesota Wild. The Celtics are kicking off a West Coast road trip by playing the Golden State Warriors. Partly sunny today. We could see a shower this afternoon. It'll be in the mid-40s. Clouds give way to clear skies overnight with temperatures in the 20s. Sunny tomorrow and in the lower 40s. It's 42 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm Ewan Martinez. And I'm Leila Falden. Today is the funeral of Justice Sandra Day O'Connor at the Washington National Cathedral. And so in remembrance of the first woman on the Supreme Court, we spoke to her son, Jay O'Connor. He says when his own son learned of his grandmother's death, he wanted to hold on to all that made her such a towering presence at home and across the country. And he spent the whole day reading all the stories and tributes to my mom, his grandmother. And that was his way of like reconnecting with his grandmother even more. Jay O'Connor says that his mom was committed to a life of public service. She worked in every branch of government, executive, congressional. She was the majority leader of the Arizona State Senate. A lot of people don't realize that about her. And of course, she was on the U.S. Supreme Court. So all three branches, but with us, like in Arizona, her whole approach and my dad's approach too, they were fully engaged in the community in Phoenix, in Arizona, throughout her youth. She lived and breathed the notion that every citizen has a duty to understand how our democracy and how our government works and has to be part of the process, has to contribute to it. She believed that, you know, from the earliest part of her career, and she lived that principle throughout her life. You also wrote about your mother's understanding that only common ground could really advance the work of a true democracy. 
if you could talk about her legacy in doing that, that was really important to her. Yeah, so it's interesting because I think this is an issue we face in America today. It's a real challenge. And it seems like we've forgotten to disagree in an agreeable way. And you can say, oh, well, that's just, you know, that's an attitude, that's a spirit, it's sort of an anachronism. No, you've got to fight hard for what you believe in. And unless you understand, listen, and engage with others, the democracy breaks down. And that's one of the challenges we face right now as a country. And she realized that, it, you know, early on. So that's sort of in terms of the country. But her approach on a personal level, in terms of the way she interacted with others and the way she interacted on the court, was all about engagement and consensus. After retiring from the Supreme Court, she founded a company, iCivics, focused on promoting civic education and the type of education you described. Would you tell us about her role in its creation and, and why she created it? She had become concerned that citizens were becoming increasingly disengaged from their democracy. So she started iCivics with exactly that goal, as to teach democracy to a new generation. And her idea was to make civic education fun and engaging through online, interactive, role-based games and really great content. How is it integrated into schools today? We have a direct relationship with social study teachers and any teacher at these schools that uses it. The approach is to make it either all the way from bite-size lessons and games and so forth, all the way through lesson plans for a whole semester or a whole year. There are a ton of kids who start a game at school and believe it or not, keep on playing it when they go home. There's not a lot of apps the kids are using at school where they're doing that. It's that fun. You know, as we speak, a lot of people in this country feel that democracy is at stake because of some of the things that you describe that many people don't pay attention to anymore. It does feel like there's a lot of political point scoring versus how do we come together to solve an issue for the country. If your mom had a message for American political leaders today, what would it be? Solve relevant problems. Country over party. Get things done. Jay O'Connor speaking to us about his mother, Sandra Day O'Connor's legacy. Thank you so much, Jay, for sharing your memories and so much about her. Love being able to talk to you. Thank you. The largest steel maker in Japan, Nippon Steel, plans to buy U.S. steel. The American manufacturer was once the world's biggest company, and it was so iconic that in The Godfather Part II, the character Hyman Roth described the power of the mob like this. Michael, we're bigger than U.S. steel. Now, that was nearly 50 years ago, before the company's decline. I have Rutgers University professor of economics, Tom Prusha, on the line. Uh, professor, so what does this $14 billion deal say about the economic health of America's manufacturing sector? Uh, actually, uh, ironically, it points to the health of the U.S. steel industry. The U.S. steel's challenge over the last several decades has been uh, a set of very innovative, low-cost U.S. steel producers that have really challenged its traditional dominance. New core and steel dynamics have been at the forefront of innovation, and that's been a challenge for U.S. steel. So even though they've been lagging behind, so to speak, they can still get that kind of price? Is that what you're saying? 
Yes, because they they they're able if they can move to uh, stop directly competing in kind of commodity steel, which is new corn steel dynamics uh, bread basket, and using Nippon Steel's technology and innovation, the set of products they make to move up the product lines and be able to service higher end customers more effectively. That's really the Nippon Steel uh, signature. Why why did U.S. Steel fall behind? They made a, a couple of uh, serious mistakes over a series of decades. Early on, they were slow to adopt the movement in the 1960s to a, a blast oxygen furnace technology. And then in the late 80s, early 90s, they were very slow to move into another type of technological innovation called electric arc furnaces. That's the technology that Nucor and Steel Dynamics have mastered. So they've just been a little slow on the uptick, and they've ha- they've struggled with their size. That is, it's hard for a, such a large company to be nimble like the small companies. All right, now, Democratic Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania used a video filmed from his house that was overlooking a U.S. steel plant uh, to call for the sale as bad for workers. Let's listen to that. It's absolutely outrageous that they have sold themselves to a foreign nation and a company. Professor, is he right? Uh, will jobs be hurt? U.S. jobs be hurt by this sale? Uh, so I don't think so. I think he, he's he's 100% wrong. So there are challenges for U.S. steel workers, and those challenges are going to be there at U.S. steel with or without Nippon Steel's ownership. What's most important for U.S. steel workers, and particularly the ones at U.S. steel, is that they have companies that will invest and continue to invest in state-of-the-art technology to allow them to be competitive. U.S. Steel has really struggled over the last decade in in investments in their firm. They've made a lot of promises that they haven't been able to keep, and I think the hope for uh, the steel workers is that Nippon will bring much-needed capital into the facilities. And U.S. Steel, in their announcement, says that Nippon Steel will honor the union's uh collective bargaining agreement. So we'll see what happens there. Um, Senator Fetterman also went on to talk about national security. He says steel is always about security, both our national security and the economic security of our steel communities. Uh, Any concerns with that, uh, Professor? No, for, first of all, the national security arguments related to steel are much overblown. I mean, with the actual percentage of steel used in the modern military uh, as percentage of our production is quite low. So that's a traditional argument made for kind of protectionist reasons. It's certainly not valid. And then, and, and then if you take it seriously, Japan is one of the United States' closest allies. And Nippon Steel is a, is a world-class company. It actually benefits in U.S. national security to have one of the prize companies in our, our our country revitalized with this joint partnership. In a way, what's happening at U.S. Steel right now is what we've seen over the last 20 years with a number of large steel companies. That is a move to become large global corporations. And quickly, Professor, what's in it for Nippon Steel? Why, why do they want to do this? It's clearly they want access, better access to the U.S. market. Uh, so that I think they see a lot of a lot of growth opportunities here in the United States with some of the Nippon technology, in particular products that can serve uh, the new emerging electric vehicle market and the renewable energy market more broadly. That's a market that they're going to have a very difficult time accessing from Japan, but uh, with U.S. Steel, uh, they will be able to do that. Rutgers University professor Tom Prusha, thank you. Thank you. 
Until very recently, actor Jonathan Majors was a Hollywood star on the rise. Earlier this year, he appeared in Creed III, and he was set to lead an upcoming Marvel movie. But yesterday, in a Manhattan courtroom, a jury found him guilty of domestic violence charges, and Marvel confirmed to NPR right after the verdict that they have dropped him. NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Siolkas was in the courtroom. The New York jury split their verdict on Jonathan Majors. They convicted him of assaulting and harassing his former girlfriend, Grace Jabari, during an argument in March, which began after she saw a text he'd received from another woman. Jabari was later found by police with bruises, cuts, and a broken finger. But the jury also found Majors innocent of two other charges, intentional assault and aggravated harassment. Essentially, they didn't believe he'd gone into the situation intending to physically hurt her. In a statement from his lawyer, Majors said he was both grateful for and disappointed by the jury's verdict. The jury also heard and saw evidence that the March incident was not the first time Majors may have hurt Jabari. In a series of text messages from 2022, the couple discussed a prior situation during which she suffered head injuries. The jurors also heard an audio recording of a separate argument in which Majors told Jabari that she needed to be more supportive of him, like, he said, Coretta Scott King or Michelle Obama. On the tape, Majors can be heard saying, quote, I'm a great man. These convictions are misdemeanors in New York, but Jonathan Major's career is already experiencing significant fallout. Majors had appeared this year in Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, and Marvel and Disney had planned to release a movie starring his character, the villain Kang the Conqueror, in 2026. Majors will be sentenced on February 6th. Anastasia Tsilkas, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we get reaction from Massachusetts Catholics to the Vatican's new rule allowing priests to bless same-sex couples. It's 820. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com and Metro West Subaru, supporting local charities during the Share the Love event. Learn more at MetroWestSubaru.com. AI can recognize your voice, your face, and maybe soon, the place you're standing right now. We created our own data set of about 500,000 Street View images, and we're able to get quite spectacular performance. A student project raises privacy concerns. I'm Elsa Chang. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. Clearing skies in mid-40s today with a slight chance of afternoon showers. It's 42 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Neon with Ferrari, Michael Mann's film about Enzo Ferrari fighting to save his empire, his family, and win the biggest race of his career. With Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, and Patrick Dempsey. Opens in theaters Christmas Day.
From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. It's time for our Bill of the Month for December. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal is Senior Contributing Editor with our partner KFF Health News and joins us once again. Welcome. Good to be here, Steve. Okay, so whose bill are we talking about for this month? Today our patient is Elise Greenblatt. She lives in Queens, New York, and she got back from a work trip to Rwanda last year. She felt like she had a sinus infection, and you know, she thought it was possible she had COVID, so she decided to see a doctor online instead of going in person in case she was infectious. And that one short telehealth visit turned into a uh, pretty big billing headache. All right, let's hear about the problem from reporter Emily Seiner. Elise Greenblatt logged on to telehealth urgent care last September. It was through Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, where she generally gets her care. She waited in an online queue, quickly got connected to a doctor. And I told her my symptoms. I told her I think I have a sinus infection. She agreed, prescribed me antibiotics, and that was it. I mean, it was like maybe five minutes. Easy enough, until she got a bill. It was for $660. When Elise tried to recreate her steps through the online urgent care portal, it told her to expect to pay $60 or less. So why was this bill more than 10 times higher? It said it was because the person I saw was out of network, and it was also listed as a 45 to 59-minute visit. Elise was confused. Even counting the time the doctor took to write a prescription, five minutes with a physician doesn't add up to a 45-minute visit. And she didn't understand how the doctor could be out of network in the first place. I assumed, since all my doctors are in my network, Mount Sinai, this doctor would be too. And I thought I would call, and it was just like a misunderstanding. And then it would like easily get fixed. And now it's over a year later. (laughs) And it's not. Elise has been going back and forth with the hospital billing department. At one point, she says someone there mentioned a consent form to see an out-of-network doctor. But the thing is, Elise doesn't remember signing that form. She asked for a copy of it, but the hospital never gave it to her. They finally sent a copy to Bill of the Month. And even more confusing, according to the timestamp on that form, Elise signed it after she finished her visit. I maybe clicked it. They said I clicked it. I don't remember reading anything that's saying this doctor was out of network. You know, I was sick. A Mount Sinai spokesperson told us that it's, quote, not standard to sign forms after the visit is over. She also said that when patients are given a consent form like that, they may contact the office and reschedule with an in-network provider. It's still not clear why the form may have been submitted after the visit. So overall, Elise isn't sure what to take away from the situation. Are you expected to, like, check every single doctor who's, like, on call? Like, it just seems, like, unrealistic. Elise is still trying to dispute her bill. But for now, her bill remains unpaid and unresolved. For NPR News, I'm Emily Seiner. Okay, Elizabeth Rosenthal remains on call and is in our network. And let me just ask you, is this legal 
to spring an out-of-network doctor on somebody? Well, you know, the No Surprises Act was passed by Congress in 2020, and in theory um, should prevent a lot of these things. But as time goes on, we're discovering some pretty big loopholes. For example, the act applies specifically to hospitals and hospital outpatient facilities, but not specifically to urgent care. Hmm. So in this case, it's not clear if it applied. In fact, even a Mount Sinai spokesperson said they needed to do more research to answer the question. Do I have to do something with every single doctor, like the, I don't know, the Miranda rights that a police officer <laughs> reads to every suspect? Like, <laughs> ask every single doctor, are you in network? Do you take my insurance? I mean, it's really not that realistic for patients to do that when they're sick, especially, but it's worth a try. Now, many hospitals and clinics offer both in and out of network providers, and providers are supposed to inform you when the care being rendered is out of network. But, you know, we've all signed those forms. It's often buried in a pile of forms that you auto sign in rapid fire, especially when it's online, right? It's just clicking a little box. Plus, the language is often a blanket statement such as, I understand that some of my care may be provided by caregivers not in my insurance network. Well, people should keep an eye out for wording like that. But, you you know, you're feeling sick and you want to see a doctor and it says, check this box and boom. They say you're responsible. What do you make of the other problem identified here, a five-minute visit that gets recorded as a 45-minute visit and someone is charged for the time? Now, we're definitely receiving a lot of submissions like that here at Bill of the Month now, where patients are billed for significantly longer than what they actually remember took place. Now, it could be, um, you know, when you check in for your visit, they always say check in 15 minutes ahead of time. Well, You shouldn't be charged for time sitting in a virtual waiting room. So my recommendation is, again, to protect yourself, maybe even timing and documenting the length of the time you actually saw a doctor. And if you get charged for a longer visit than what took place, contact your doctor's office or your insurer. After all, your insurer doesn't know how long your visit was unless you tell them. So, you know, these are all tips, but it's really a lot to ask of patients when they're sick. For your records at home, this conversation with Elizabeth Rosenthal was just over five minutes. Thanks so much. (laughs) Yeah, we're honest, huh? Thanks. Absolutely. If you have a confusing or outrageous medical bill that you want us to review, go to NPR's SHOTS blog and tell us all about it. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 845 on Morning Edition, the number of journalists killed in Gaza since the October 7th Hamas attacks is being called unprecedented. It's 829.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Retired U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor will be laid to rest today. She died on December 1st in Phoenix at the age of 93. President Biden and Chief Justice John Roberts are among those expected to speak at O'Connor's funeral service at Washington National Cathedral. O'Connor was the first woman to serve on the nation's high court. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says the U.S. will lead a 10-nation task force to protect commercial ships in the Red Sea. This follows recent attacks by Iranian-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen. These reckless Houthi attacks are a serious international problem, and they demand a firm international response. Austin was speaking earlier today in Bahrain. Scientists are keeping a close watch on a volcano in southwest Iceland following last night's eruption not far from the town of Grindavik. So far, there have been no disruptions to airline flights in Iceland. Robert Donald Forrester is a tourist there from the U.S. I'm very excited to be here in, in this uh in this place, in this in this time, and just being able to see this natural phenomenon happen, just seeing lava emerge from the ground, even if it's in, in a particular continent such as this, it's just fascinating to see just nature in action. The town was evacuated last month after seismic activity damaged homes. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The electricity is still out for nearly everyone in Millis and Situate this morning following yesterday's storm. The state reports more than 135,000 outages statewide. The bulk of those are on the South Shore. That's forced the closure of schools today in Situate, Cohasset, Duxbury, and other communities. At Logan Airport, there are about 30 delayed flights so far today. The Steamship Authority says it's back to regular service. More than 3,500 families with migrant, refugee, or asylum seeker status entered the state's emergency shelter system this year. That's according to a new report from Governor Healy. At the current pace, the administration estimates that in all, more than 13,000 families could be in the shelter system by the end of June. That would drive the cost of the program to more than $1 billion for the year. That's nearly four times what the state initially budgeted. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says she wants to move with urgency toward settling on a plan to upgrade and expand the John D. O'Brien School. The O'Brien is an exam school. It shares a campus in Roxbury with Madison Park Vocational School. Wu wants to move the O'Brien to West Roxbury. She told WBUR's Radio Boston the city needs to move toward an ultimate solution, even if it upsets some parents. If we want to see new schools built Anytime in the next decade, we need to get going on it now. There's a reason why our school buildings are falling apart. These are hard conversations that are complex and involve a lot of communities. Some O'Brien parents say the West Roxbury site is too far. They also say the school district hasn't talked enough with parents in the decision-making process. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lake Champlain Chocolates. Celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at LakeChamplainChocolates.com. The Celtics begin a week-long West Coast swing tonight. They'll visit the Golden State Warriors. Meantime, the Bruins will be at home tonight to skate with the Minnesota Wild. There's a slight chance of afternoon showers today. Otherwise, skies gradually clear for a partly sunny day with highs in the mid-40s. Some clouds move back in this evening, then skies clear again overnight. It'll be in the upper 20s. Sunny tomorrow will have highs in the low 40s. It's 42 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Pope Francis has established a major new doctrine allowing Catholic priests to bless same-sex couples. The Vatican says those blessings may not give the appearance of an endorsement of same-sex marriage. Reactions have ranged from celebration to scorn. WBUR Simone Rios spoke to some Catholics and marriage equality advocates in Boston about the new Vatican rules. In the Catholic Church, it's common to ask a priest to bless a rosary or an engagement or even a new car. Priests often bless marriages, but only now do they have the authority to give their blessings to same-sex couples. It is a giant step forward, and it feels like another window is being opened in the Catholic Church for LGBTQ people. That's Marianne Duddy Burke of Dignity USA, a Boston-based nonprofit that she says is the oldest Catholic LGBTQ organization in the world. It was only two years ago that there was an official statement from the Vatican that same-sex couples could not be blessed. So in Vatican time, this is a meteoric shift in attitudes. But other advocates are reacting with mixed feelings to Pope Francis's shift towards greater inclusion. Arlene Isaacson co-chairs the Massachusetts GLBTQ political caucus and is a veteran of the successful fight to legalize gay marriage in the state. As much as the community welcomes the change, she says it's hard to forget the fierce opposition by church officials. The Catholic Church, for decades, lobbied against every major piece of LGBTQ equality legislation or anti-discrimination legislation. And as a result, many Catholics left the church, not just the LGBTQ Catholics, but their families also left the church. Yet Isaacson says others may feel ready to return to a church seen as more welcoming. More conservative Catholics are condemning the Pope's decision to allow priests to bless same-sex couples. C.J. Doyle heads the Catholic Action League of Massachusetts, a group that tracks media coverage and church vandalism. Doyle says the move is a tragedy that breaks with long-standing Catholic teachings. In the 2,000-year history of the Catholic Church, this is the first time that we saw a Pope essentially depart from the traditional Catholic faith. It's very disturbing. It's very appalling. And again, we hope and trust that the Holy Spirit will eventually correct this. Doyle says the trend towards progressivism could even drive some people away from the church. Not so for religion scholar Matthew Schmaltz of College of the Holy Cross in Worcester. I'm not gay, but my sister is. And my sister married her partner. And, you know, I think many Catholic families, such as my own, are going to be very deeply impacted by this. Schmaltz doesn't see the Vatican allowing gay marriage anytime soon, possibly ever, because he says that's outside even the Pope's authority. But within the confines of an often divided church, Schmaltz says Pope Francis is reaching out in the most inclusive way he can. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simon Rios.
when it comes to helping people exiting prison reestablish themselves in communities and not reoffend, probation officers are key. And Massachusetts has the oldest statewide probation system in the country. But a state report last year found it's beset with structural racism and disproportionately impacts people of color. Now, a black person has been named to lead the Massachusetts Probation Service for the first time in its 145 years. Commissioner Pamerson Eiffel joins me now. Good morning. Good morning, Rupa. You've been working in the state probation service since 1993 in a variety of roles, and you've been working on addressing racism and disparities within the agency. But does having a black person in the top role have an impact or send a message? Well, I think it matters. Um, I started in the field as a line probation officer. There were five individuals of color. There were two black, two Latino, and I believe there was also one Asian probation employee. When I think back then and the work that it has taken to ascend to be the first Black commission in 145 years, I think it speaks to the changing nature of the system, of the state, the demographics, the populations that we work with. And we know that we've got some work to do, but I think we're making progress in a lot of spaces. How did you see these disparities play out during your time with the probation service? Well, look, I've had enough negative experience from the racial perspective, whether it is going to courthouses and being mistaken as a defendant. (laughs) I think the most recent one was in 2019, despite being a deputy commissioner, to understanding that, you know, Harvard took a hard look at our data and realized that a Black individual would spend 167 days longer in prison for an offense committed by a white individual when you control for the same types of charge and charge severity. And a Latino person would spend 148 days longer given the same set of circumstances. So we understand this and we fundamentally have taken significant steps. It's clear you've been focused on solutions. You're known for, among other things, creating a text messaging notification system that got more defendants to attend court appearances So what other possible solutions have you been thinking about that you finally get to make happen now? We know that in a state where there's free health insurance, despite that significant amount of individuals who are involved with the courts are not enrolled. We have trained 20 trial court employees who are now enrolling individuals as certified application counselors into health insurance. Because we know that if we can get you insurance, we can get you mental health treatment, we can get you substance abuse treatment. So we want to remove that barrier at every touch point. The public data that Massachusetts provides about the probation service can be really opaque, especially compared to other states. For example, everyone from adults serving probation to children under state supervision are grouped together. Do you have any plans to change that? We've been taking a hard dive, and we know that We've got to get better at collecting data, but we've gone out to bid for a new case management system where we're going to be able to tell you demographic offense types. All of the data points that we are interested in understanding the system better is going to be much more responsive. And so we're working at that. I've seen you tell the story about growing up in Barbados and getting into fights and how your life could have gone down a, a very different road. So how does it feel to be in a position to potentially help thousands of people go down a better path themselves. As a child growing up and living in poverty and living on the same slave plantation that my family were were slaves on, 
coming here and having this opportunity to really help change the lives and trajectory. It's a reminder that if we give people the right kinds of tools, resources, and opportunities, the lot of the folks that we're working with can be successful. Some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life were sitting across from a probation counter and talking to me just because they didn't have access opportunities or make the right decisions. Pamerson Eiffel is Massachusetts's probation commissioner. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rupa. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, as you prepare to travel for the holidays, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at who will benefit from a record $140 million fine imposed by the Department of Transportation on Southwest Airlines for last year's epic holiday travel meltdown. Cloudy skies gradually clear today for a partly sunny afternoon, although there is a slight chance of showers around mid-afternoon. It'll be in the mid-40s. It grows overcast this evening and falls to the upper 20s. Clearing skies overnight make way for a sunny day tomorrow in the low 40s. It's 42 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Babson College, where an MBA or specialized master's equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. Gain the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal. Babson.edu slash grad programs. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Through December 31st, tickets at bostonballet.org. Workers at several independent coffee shops in the Boston area are now operating under the same union. The local 325 union originally represented workers at Pavement, which has eight locations in the area. It now includes workers from 1369 Coffee House in Cambridge, as well as Diesel and Blanc Cafes and Forge Baking and Ice Cream Bar in Somerville. Cambridge Health Alliance is now serving patients in Malden. The Alliance opened the new Community Behavioral Health Center yesterday, which offers urgent care with same-day evaluation and referral treatment. The new location is part of a statewide initiative to expand access for mental health care. Boston-based WS Development wants to build a new development in the spot currently home to the Fenway Johnnies. The company is asking the Boston Planning and Development Agency to consider a plan that would transform the restaurant on Brookline Avenue into a multi-story office and lab space. The proposal is part of a larger development that encompasses several areas of the Fenway neighborhood. It's 845. WBUR supporters include Sincere Foundation which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. The Gaza Health Ministry says at least 19,000 people have died since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, and Israel responded with an aggressive military campaign in Gaza. Among them are at least 
64 journalists. The Nonprofit Committee to Protect Journalists says that is unprecedented, that the month following the October 7th attacks is the deadliest for journalists since the group started keeping track in 1992. The president of the Committee to Protect Journalists, Jody Ginsburg, is with us now to talk more about this. Good morning, Jody. Morning. In a statement to NPR, Israeli Defense Forces said that covering active combat areas is inherently dangerous and unintended casualties are a tragic possibility. Now, I think we all understand that, but is there something more that makes covering Gaza so dangerous? That's right. Of course, covering war is dangerous. But as you said, this is the deadliest conflict that we have ever documented. And we've been doing this work for more than 30 years. The reason it's inherently dangerous in Gaza is because of the nature of the bombardment, which means it's very difficult, almost impossible for people to stay safe. Journalists in Gaza are reporting on the injured in hospitals, for example, and hospitals have been attacked or they're reporting on convoys trying to flee the north to the south and and those roads have been attacked it's they've that people have been told to move from the north to the south yet the south was was bombarded so it's impossible for journalists to report in a way where they can be safe or, or get to a place of safety well just to contrast that i think you were telling us earlier that in ukraine for example you've documented two deaths of, of journalists this year and 15 last year and this is also an active war Exactly. And that, I think, illustrates some of the differences in the way uh, that this war is being conducted compared to other wars. You've got to also remember about the size of Gaza. Gaza is a very small strip of land. It's very concentrated. And that's also one of one of the defining factors of this uh, of this war. So the IDF says certain journalists and they put that in quotation marks who were reportedly killed. They say were active terror operatives. Is your group able to verify verify or dispute that? What we do at the Committee to Protect Journalists is try to verify uh, and work very hard to verify that the individuals we have documented are journalists. They're doing journalistic work. They're trying to document the facts on the ground, provide news to the communities involved, which is why our numbers, compared to perhaps some of the other numbers that we might see, are slightly lower because we're really painstakingly trying to make sure that we have at least two sources of information about the journalists themselves and about the killing. Who should be held accountable here? What does accountability look like? Accountability looks like holding those responsible for the killings of journalists, um, holding those responsible and accountable. And that means us being able to investigate those deaths and, uh, and particularly see if any of those deaths involved the killing, the deliberate killing or targeting of journalists. Journalists are civilians and civilians should not be targeted in war. Human, international humanitarian law is very clear about that. So one of the things we really want to understand is to look at the patterns where we've seen in particular journalists who have been clearly wearing uh, press insignia, clearly carrying uh, press equipment where they appear to have been targeted. And, and, and who would take responsibility for that? What would be the entity that would do that as briefly as you can? The uh, responsibility for investigations, there are a number of bodies that can do that, including the International Criminal Court. We've had independent bodies look at that. Um, uh, in some cases, the, the governments of different nationalities um, and, of course, uh, Israel itself. That's Jody Ginsburg. She's the president of the Committee to Protect Journalists. Jody, thank you so much. Thank you. You can find more coverage and different viewpoints on the conflict at npr.org slash Middle East.
This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have more on the effort to stop Houthis from attacking commercial ships in the Red Sea, plus global reaction to the Catholic Church's new rule allowing the blessing of same-sex marriages. It's 8:50. WBUR supporters include Loomis Sales, proud to support Boston Medical Center and their Supporting Our Families Through Addiction and Recovery program committed to helping families enhance their children's development and providing support for recovery with access to specialty care and social services. Learn more at bmc.org. The conflict between Israel and Hamas, deep division in Congress and a looming election, devastation driven by climate change. These are serious times and they require serious journalism. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. WBUR and NPR help make sense of what can, at times, feel like a senseless world. So keep our journalism strong with your year-end contribution. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. The U.N. Security Council plans to vote today on a motion for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas after an earlier attempt was blocked by U.S. officials. 127 people are dead after an earthquake hit northern China. And officials in Iceland are on high alert after there's a volcano in the southwestern part of the country erupts. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Rhodes Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. How people buy applications on Android phones is about to change, and there are an estimated 140 million of those in America. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. And by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. Details are now public of an antitrust settlement that Google has reached with state attorneys general. It's about the Google Play Store, where you buy the apps that run under the Android system. Google has agreed to ease restrictions on how independent app makers charge users. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has details. Attorneys general from all 50 states and the District of Columbia had accused Google of abusing its market dominance with what they called unnecessary fees and restrictions on how apps could be downloaded on Android devices. Google hasn't admitted wrongdoing, but it has agreed to pay $630 million into a settlement fund for consumers. Google will put another $70 million into a fund that will be used by the states. In a blog post, Google's vice president of government affairs and public policy Policy, Wilson White, says consumers can now download apps directly from a developer's website without going through an app store like Google Play. Google gets a cut of up to 30 percent of purchases downloaded from its app store. The settlement still needs final court approval. Last week, game developer Epic won a different case against Google. A jury decided Google's charges and rules for developers violated antitrust law. Google is appealing that verdict. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. 
More now on the conditions under which Southwest Airlines passengers can get free vouchers for flights as compensation for the system-wide Southwest Airlines mess. A year ago, two million passengers were delayed. Now, as part of a $140 million penalty with the federal government, passengers can get a voucher if they suffered through what's called a controllable cancellation or delay. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes explains. Under the new order, if Southwest passengers arrive at their destination three or more hours late, they can request a voucher worth at least $75, but only if the issues were caused by something that's under the airline's control. It could be aircraft cleaning or it could be fueling or mechanical issues. Blaine Werke is assistant general counsel with the DOT's Office of Aviation Consumer Protection, which conducted the Southwest investigation. The voucher program will start in late April and last three years. Werke says the agency wants consumers to be treated fairly. And if you are not treating them fairly, you will be held accountable. In other words, there's a price for failure, says Henry Hardeveld of the Atmosphere Research Group. If you do not invest in your technology systems, if you do not have ways for you to keep in touch with your crews, then you're going to have to give the traveler a credit. The Department of Transportation is expected to propose a rule that would require all airlines to compensate passengers for these kinds of delays. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. Markets S&P and Dow futures are both up two-tenths of a percent. And this number, the average wage employers will pay to get people to come to work for the company. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York says it is now more than $79,000, up from more than $69,000 just in July. This is the highest wage in the nine years researchers have been doing the calculation at work here. Very low unemployment, empowering workers to demand more if they're going to switch jobs. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath. More than 10,000 organizations use the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform to automate business processes. It's a smarter way to innovate. More at UiPath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. I want to warn you here that our next story references self-harm. 28 million adults who have a mental illness go untreated in the U.S. This is terrible for people, but it also hurts the economy. Take Indiana. Researchers there put a price tag on untreated mental illness. Elizabeth Gabriel, a reporter from the public health news initiative called Side Effects Public Media, has that. Doctors diagnosed Willie Fraser with depression and borderline personality disorder when he was a teenager. Depression is real, and it, it can hit you in where you could be at the top of the world, and then one little thing, and you just completely at the bottom. When someone has a chronic mental illness, like major depressive disorder, finding the strength to seek help can feel unsurmountable. I even tried to rip my own teeth out because I just wanted to feel something besides the thoughts in my head telling me I'm not good enough. Frazier is roughly one of 400,000 people in Indiana with untreated mental illness. Researchers found that untreated mental illness cost Indiana over $4 billion in 2019. For context, the state's leading agricultural industry, corn, generates at least $3 billion a year. Heather Taylor, who led the study, says the workforce loss is huge. That equates to about 100,000 jobs. And some of that cost is also from missed workdays. So we are taking money out of our economy because we're not 
treating these conditions well, frankly, or individuals don't have appropriate access to the treatments that they need. And when people don't have the treatment they need, that can lead to premature deaths. That's where most of the $4 billion comes from. Fewer people working, paying taxes, and adding to the economy. According to a 2008 study, the most recent, nationwide untreated mental illness costs the U.S. at least $193 billion every year. Researcher Marion Green at Indiana University says one barrier is the healthcare workforce shortage. It's led to longer wait times to see mental health specialists. People with serious mental illness, they generally have to have some type of medication and medication management, so they need to see a psychiatrist before they can get the right prescriptions. And even if a provider is available, it's still tough for people like Willie Frazier, who has a history of self-harm. He's low income and doesn't have insurance. Therapists cost so much. Mental medicine costs so much. And I'm just like, I'm not going to pay for this when I, I can't afford it. Frazier says he is working hard to get his own insurance so he's closer to accessing the health care he needs. In Indianapolis, I'm Elizabeth Gabriel for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm David Brancaccio, and we are from APM, American Public Media. WBUR supporters include Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. And AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around Greater Boston. alprime.com. I'm executive editor for News, Dan Mozzie. And this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.